yeah, I think we can start. Hi, Wisdom. Hi, Mohammed. Uh, feel free to raise hand, um, ask questions. And I think Victoria um, yeah, has a link to share with us. Thank you. All right. And yeah, thank you for... So you've got that link pinned up there, and I appreciate that. And I will share this article. So I'm, I'll put another link in the chat that gives some more general information about lupus because this is, this is World Awareness Day for the autoimmune disease of lupus. And this whole month is Lupus Awareness Month. So we're sharing, we're sharing this article and it is titled, Potential new therapeutic target for inflammatory diseases such as lupus and sepsis. And it continues. Scientists working in the School of Biochemistry and Immunology in the Trinity, excuse me, what's going on? Trinity Biomedical Sciences Institute at Trinity College, Dublin, have made an important breakthrough in understanding what goes wrong in our bodies during the progression of inflammatory diseases and in doing so, have unearthed a potential new therapeutic target. Um, this is fantastically exciting because there's really not been any any huge movement in in um, information about lupus, the um, you know the progression and that. So so we hear the scientists have found that an enzyme called fumarate hydratase is repressed in macrophages which is a frontline inflammatory cell type implicated in a range of diseases, including lupus, arthritis, sepsis, and COVID-19. Professor Luke O'Neill, professor of biochemistry at Trinity, is a lead author of the research article that has just been published in leading international journal, Nature. He explains, no one has made a link from fumarate hydratase to inflammatory macrophages before, and we feel that this process might be targetable to treat debilitating diseases like lupus, which is a nasty autoimmune disease that damages several parts of the body, including the skin, kidneys, and joints. And lupus is one of those diseases that we can call an invisible illness that people have, they're suffering and we don't even know, you know, people are regularly hospitalized with lupus in, in, um, in managing the disease and their fatigue and, and the attack on their organs. But, you know, we see them, we don't see them, but meanwhile, they're dealing with, with this disease. So this research is so important and it's important um, just for Lupus Awareness Month to, to raise awareness and shed light. Um, so they go on, joint first author Christian Peace adds, we've made an important link between fumarase hydratase, excuse me, fumarate hydratase and immune proteins called cytokines that mediate inflammatory diseases. We found that when fumarate hydratase is repressed, RNA is released from mitochondria, which combined to key proteins MDA5 and TLR7 and trigger the release of cytokines, thereby worsening inflammation. This process could potentially be targeted therapeutically. And they continue, I'll, I'll share a bit more. Uh, 
fumarate hydratase was shown to be repressed in a model of sepsis, an often fatal systemic inflammatory condition that can happen during bacterial and viral infections. Similarly, in blood samples from patients with lupus, fumarate hydratase was dramatically decreased. Restoring the fumarate hydratase in these diseases or targeting MDA5 or TLR7 therefore presents an exciting prospect for badly needed new anti-inflammatory therapies. And this work is accompanied by another publication by a group led by Professor Christian Fretza, now at the University of Cologne, and Dr. Julian Prudent at the MRC Mitochondrial Biology Unit, who have made similar findings in the context of kidney cancer. Because the system can go wrong in certain types of cancer, the scope of any potential therapeutic target could be widened beyond inflammation. So there is this wonderful article, and I will share also a link to um, a U.S. lupus organization for people who would like more information about helping to raise awareness. Yes. Thank you for raising this awareness. I didn't, I didn't realize it was, um, um, you know, this month going on. Um, and yeah, it, it's really a very, very, um, hard to treat, um, disease that, uh, is really, um, yeah, uh, debilitating. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think this is really great news. And I don't know, Joyce, do you want to add something? I know you're more an expert into this immune system related um, disorders. Oh, well, um, I, I, I tend to look at, you know, microbiome connections with everything. And I'm sure there are with lupus as well, but I, I can't mention it off the top of my head. But anyway, I, I also did share a link in the chat about the history of lupus and I was just looking at that. It was from the Lupus Foundation and actually it was known a long, quite a long time ago and um, you know the name comes from the word wolf because uh, I guess there's a certain um, kind of a rash on the face that's fairly common in it and, and they think it, some people thought it looked a bit like the markings of a wolf I believe. But anyway that's uh that's just some thoughts on it thanks this this is exciting news yeah also um because of sepsis i mean more and more people die of sepsis um also related to more and more antibiotic resistance um that strains that are um you know increasing especially in hospitals so this is also um, will have implication for sepsis. So this really important research. Um, so I hope um, it will lead to treatment rather sooner than later. So um, yeah, thanks for sharing this great news, Victoria. Should I, do you wanna switch to the next one?
I'm not sure if people can hear me or if my connection. Oh, is sorry. sorry. Oh, don't worry. Okay, good. I was just I was having a sure. great time talking with my mic muted. <laughs> just saying how wonderful to have something beyond managing, even though managing is is important. That's what people have um, to think that there's you know the, so there's some therapeutic um, advancement happening and how interesting that they're finding this is repressed in macrophages just because there's so many different types of blood cells and immune factors. And so I think it's, it just amazes me that, that this people can understand what's happening on that molecular level at all. So sure, I am ready for the next, um, uh, yes, here we go. Okay, this is really, this is really exciting too. Speaking of microscopic level, it's titled, Researchers Discover That the Ice Cap is Teeming with Microorganisms. So, um, some this reminds me, so I, I work in arts and science education, and when I teach about about microbiome and, and um, you know, microbiology, I tell my students, and I, I teach in elementary and, and um, up to middle school, and I, I tell the students there's really never any reason to feel alone because we're inhabited by so many microorganisms. And, and so here, this article is, is just reinforcing that, but, but um, on the extra organism level, like without and within. So researchers discover that the ice cap is teeming with microorganisms. What could be more fun? Um, there are no plants, only very few animals, and people rarely come here. Large glaciers in Greenland have long been perceived as ice deserts, gigantic ice sheets where conditions for life are extremely harsh. However, now, Headed by Professor Alexander Onesio, a group of researchers from the Department of Environmental Science at Aarhus University have discovered... Joyce, were you talking about Aarhus last time also, that you had just been there? <laughs> no, but, but you know, Susie Bianco actually lives there, so that's why I know Okay, <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, you had a friend. Okay, so here we are back in Denmark at Aarhus University have discovered that the glaciers are teeming with life, microbes that have adapted to life on the ice. And not just one or two, but several thousand species. A small puddle of meltwater on a glacier can easily have 4,000 different species living on it. They live on bacteria, algae, viruses, and microscopic fungi, an entire ecosystem that they never knew existed until recently. Over the past 50 years, researchers have repeatedly been surprised by the hardiness of life, which has been found several kilometers underground where there's neither sun nor oxygen, and billions of microorganisms eat minerals in the bedrock and so can survive. And we've found that life can also survive in space because European researchers had placed a colony of more than 3,000 microscopic tardigrades outside a satellite and sent them into orbit around the Earth, which lasted for 10 days 
and no less than 68% of the little tardigrades had survived in the vacuum of space, even in this lethal radiation. So they explain that it should come as no surprise that there's also life found on the glaciers, and lots of it. One of the microorganisms on the ice that the researchers spent most of their time investigating is a small black algae. It grows on the top of the ice and tinges it black. And there's a reason why the black algae is so interesting for the researchers. Because when the ice darkens, it becomes more difficult to reflect sunlight. And instead, heat from the sun's rays is absorbed by the ice, which starts to melt. And the warmer, the more it melts, then the warmer Earth temperatures become. And the algae therefore play an important role in global warming. In recent years, larger areas of ice have become stained by the algae, making the ice melt even faster. Alexander Anesio has calculated that the algae are increasing the ice melt by about 20%. That's not so fun. The algae on the ice existed before people um, had anything to do with climate change through industrialization. However, climate change means that spring arrives earlier to the Arctic as a result the algae now have a longer season to grow and spread, and they spread a little bit each year. Uh, the researcher explains that when they travel to Greenland, they now see vast areas where the ice is completely dark because of the algae. Alexander Anesio and his colleagues are spending a lot of time on the black algae because they're trying to find whether the algae growth can be slowed in some way. There's a, there's a, um, they're trying to learn more about the relationship between the different microbes that have, some microbes may affect it. Some small viral particles attack and consume bacteria. We believe that some of the fungal spores could eat the black algae, and this is what we're looking for. He stresses that even if they do find a way to curb the algal growth, they will not solve climate change, <laughs> which we could understand. Um, algae is found virtually everywhere, in the sea, in lakes, on trees, rocks, and even as small spores in the air. Most are greenish, like plants and trees. They use chlorophyll for photosynthesis. But the black algae live on ice, and so they are bombarded with sunlight and radiation and produce the black pigment, which is the same pigment as in black tea, to form a protective layer and protect the chlorophyll molecules against the radiation. When the pigment absorbs the sun's rays, it generates heat, and this benefits the algae, which need both water and micronutrients from the ice to live. They can, the algae can only use the water when it's liquid. So that's interesting. So they're, they're creating their own microclimate by destroying the ice. <laughs> Alexander Anesio's research into life on the ice is important for a better understanding of climate change. NASA is also following his research results closely, and the results may be crucial in the hunt for life in space. He explains, NASA has approached us several times because we're working with life that lives in one of the most inhospitable places on Earth. If life thrives on and under ice, there's a probability we'll also find life in the ice on Mars or Jupiter or Saturn's ice moons, for example. Before NASA sent their Perseverance rover to Mars, they had invited Alessandro Onesio to a meeting. They were afraid that the rover would take would the, they were afraid that the rover would take it with microbes from Earth, microbes that may be able to survive on Mars and pollute the samples they were going to take from Mars. So they wanted to know what conditions life can survive in and what are the boundaries for life.
NASA is also interested in the research of life on the ice because they haven't found liquid water on any other planets in the solar system yet, but they've found plenty of ice. And there's evidence to suggest that there are liquid oceans beneath the frozen surface of Saturn's moon and Enceladus and Jupiter's moon Europa, and one of the necessities of life as we know it is liquid water. Therefore, NASA and other space agencies are very interested in learning more about the type of life that can live on and under ice, because organisms that resemble those in Greenland are probably those they'll be looking for on the ice moons. And their questions they're interested in are how the microorganisms on the ice function, how much nutrition do they need, what types of nutrition, how does the ecosystem they are part of work. So this is what is yeah, this is this is really interesting. This is the connection between um, climate change and losing the ice caps, and also what that can mean for exploring life in other planets. Yeah, that is indeed exciting because lately I've been reading a lot of, you know, where they kind of or models assume there's ice on all kinds of different, um, um, you know, planets and moons and so on. So, yeah, that that would be really exciting if um, if we would find those. On the other hand, we have to be really careful to not bring these along by accident if they are so abundant. That's a huge concern that we, by accident, you know, through space travel, basically. Um, and um, you know, robots we send for discovery that we kind of infect these places and disturb their evolution basically. So that's another thought I have. So the more we know, because if they are so resistant, let's, I don't know what NASA does to kind of make sure we don't bring those microorganisms along. Um, they probably sterilize stuff. Do they use UV light? I'm not sure. Well, I, I was looking into this at one point um, about whether it was possible really to have anything sterile. And um, I saw some, one quotation that, you know, there's probably no sterile place on Earth. Uh, you know, they've even found microbes in, you know, super salty ices. And, you know, and actually NASA has a policy to try to reduce the microbes, but they're not able to completely sterilize um, their facilities. They're just not able to do it. About the only place that's sterile may be some laboratory clean rooms where they have to get super, super sterile. But And they have different classifications as to how sterile it is. But actually, NASA discovered a couple of microbes that were living off of the cleaning solutions that they were using to try to kill them. <laughs> so. They, they oh, can't wow. look completely sterile. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, there's even microorganisms living in nuclear facilities in the water at some point. Yeah. I discovered some. <laughs> I mean, there's no limit to life. So, yeah, we just have to be careful that we don't do things like we did in history to bring along some microbes and kill everything and everyone before we even have a chance to discover stuff yeah, you know <laughs> it leads in a whole new another level to invasive species interplanetary yeah. Invasive species. yeah exactly it's not much much discussed in in star trek 
I don't know if it, there's a new Star Trek Picard season where he's like really old and and is back. It's really cool. <laughs> you know, they leave the stuff out. <laughs> you mean the original uh, Patrick Stewart? Yeah, that? he's back. Three seasons. Oh. But I think this one was the last because the ending is really that kind of that he's not going back to do adventures his son is he's he he has a son uh, it's really cool i recommend it it on prime through prime something else anyways for all the nerds that love star trek and as kids uh picard is back <laughs> yeah, I, I was like Jean-Luc picard he, he was my favorite captain i'll have to say yeah look back at the original now and I kind of feel like ah, nowadays maybe he wouldn't be anymore, <laughs> but because it was back in the time where he kind of fitted. But nowadays, you know, they, he changed a lot. So, anyways, uh, really, really cool new season three of them. Okay, so should we switch to the next um, one? Uh, Victoria has one more that is really interesting and very different um, to share. And then I have um, a few also. Uh, we will try to cover again different types of science fields. So um, yeah, this is really exciting, Victoria, because it combines like all your interests in one. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. <laughs> We just run into these things that we have an affinity toward. Okay, so this one, I, I may go back and forth between this article and if they leave something out to the actual paper, um, which went a little bit more in depth, but this was so fascinating, talking about why some Renaissance artists used egg, why they were using this egg tempera, egg paint. Um, and this article uh, by Jude Coleman in Science News, begins by sharing that art historians often wish Renaissance painters could shell out. Oh, it's so full of puns. This is why it's really, it's nice to just read the uh, research paper. But anyway, shell out secrets of the craft. And now scientists may have cracked one of the one using chemistry and physics. This will teach me to stick to the research paper. Uh, around the turn of the 15th century, in Italy, oil-based paints replaced egg-based tempera paint as the dominant medium. During this transition, artists including Leonardo da Vinci and Sandro Botticelli also experimented with paints made from oil and egg. However, it has been unclear how adding egg to oil paints may have affected the artwork. Usually, when we think about art, not everybody thinks about the sciences, which is behind it says chemical engineer Ophélie Ronquette of the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany. In the lab, uh, Ophélie and colleagues whipped up two egg oil recipes to compare them with plain oil paint. One mixture contained fresh egg yolk mixed into oil paint and had a similar consistency to mayonnaise. The other blend, scientists ground pigment right into the yolk, dried it, and mixed it with oil a process the old masters might have used according to the scant historical records that exist today. 
each medium so we know what's in them but we don't know how they how those um how those combinations were created how they arose or even how they were prepared even the order of preparation for the recipes so each medium was subjected to a battery of tests analyzing its mass moisture oxidation heat capacity drying time and other things in both recipes, the yolks, proteins, phospholipids, and antioxidants helped to slow paint oxidation, which can cause paint to turn yellow over time, one team reported in March 28th, Nature Communications. In the mayonnaise-like blend, the yolk created sturdy links between the pigment particles resulting in stiffer paint. Such consistency would have been ideal for techniques like impasto, a raised, thick style that adds texture to art, Egg additions could also have reduced wrinkling by creating a firmer paint consistency. Wrinkling sometimes happens with oil paints when the top layer dries faster than the paint underneath and the dried film buckles over loose or still wet paint. And maybe, I don't know if anybody's ever done that, made their own egg tempera, or you know, maybe if you think back to wandering a museum of times that you've seen that that something that looks exactly like buckling and so I thought this was really interesting because I can think of times that I've seen that on paintings. The hybrid mediums have some less than excellent qualities, another pun. For instance, the eggy oil paint can take longer to dry. If the paints were too yolky, Renaissance artists would have had to wait a long time to add the next layer, Roquette said. The more we understand how artists select and manipulate their materials, the more we can appreciate what they're doing, the creative process, and the final project, says Ken Sutherland, director of scientific research at the Art Institute of Chicago, who was not involved in the work. Um, so going over to this uh, research paper, um, there's just a bit that I wanted to share that I found interesting. They're talking more about um, this paper, which was, um, let's see, well, we, we heard it was Ophelia Ronquette and where the paper was. Um, okay, what was the role of these proteins? How and why were they introduced into the oil paints? The technical knowledge of the old masters, how paint had to be prepared, was initially passed down in workshops, but it's lost today. It's known what pigments, binders, and techniques were used in general, but in insufficient detail. There's more to the preparation of a paint than just mixing the pigment with a binder. For example, when in the 15th century Italian artists started to turn from egg tempera toward adopting northern oil painting, in one of the art historically most important technical transitions in painting, they seem to have had some problems, as the wrinkling in an early painting by Leonardo da Vinci testifies. This is surprising because oil paints had been known in Italy for more than a hundred years. Oil paints are described in Cennino Cennini's famous treatise written in 1400, and oil binders have been identified in Italian 14th century paints. However, these oil paints were usually monochrome colors applied on silver or gold leaf that didn't need blending or complex paint application, and thus oil painting seems to be more than painting with oil paints. Protein additions might have been helpful to modify oil paints' properties in a beneficial way 
allowing, allowing more sophisticated paint handling. And so the our other article that I'd mentioned had discussed that with drawing time and and buckling. So this article, I, I can I will share this this link in the chat. It goes into much more detail and and methodology and and more results. So um, that's that amazing article. And it's possible to make egg temper today if anybody's interested. That is really interesting. And it's so surprising how much we learn now about, you know, what, how much knowledge we lost in between um, and, and why is probably also interesting. But, you know, we recently discovered, for example, that cement that um, ancient Rome used was way more resilient um, and uh, we discovered just recently why and why it um you know the quality of the cement um withstands so much um time temperature changes and so on uh, that came out this year and and now this and then we had our guest speaker that looked into different methods of embalming and other things um with our modern tech um in science to to kind of retrieve the knowledge we kind of lost along the way for different reasons i i think that's always exciting to learn that we are not as dumb as we thought we just have to keep relearning things and i hope we learn from that and and become better at um you know archiving knowledge in a way that it doesn't get censored and um yeah especially censored by by radicals that's really makes, interesting sorry go ahead joyce you you go ahead please i i just think it makes me think of the debates about you know how different civilizations did things like the pyramids and the you know the easter island statues and all that kind of thing <laughs> it's interesting Yes, sorry, I'm trying to get back to the mic, to the screen. Um, it is, and I, I, I wonder what if there, if it was deliberate, that the information wasn't passed on, or if it had, if it had, if it had to do with the fact that they were switching more to just an oil-based paint and leaving the egg temper behind. But still, there is so much, there is so much knowledge that was passed down, and this wasn't. And this was done, this technique was used by an educated mass of people who did have means of preserving information. So it is really curious how something could be lost, although it makes me wonder if, if techniques were secret. Because I know I'd, I'd read that there were, that the artists did like to keep some of their techniques secret. So it could have been, have something to do with that as well. Yeah, yeah, that's another really good point that this discussion about open source knowledge and, you know, collaboration and so on, that just emphasizes in, in this context also how important it is to keep that alive, I think, and to keep collaboration alive, open collaboration, uh, because it's important for the future. And I know 
a lot of politicians tend to drive different nations to kind of hate each other, oppose each other, have wars for different reasons. And it's not like I'm a pacifist. I'm totally for that sometimes stuff is necessary, but we still should keep like, um, I don't know, a neutral zone maybe for science and knowledge out there um, to keep progress um, going. And I hope we can we can enforce that. But it's, for example, really sad. It's almost impossible to invite people here from Russia and China, as we used to do quite regularly in this club. So, yeah. But, yeah, I hope to keep that alive because we should learn from the past. Yeah. This reminds me in one of our early rooms. And I'm sorry, I, I, I won't remember who said it or what the room topic was. But one of the research was, researchers was talking about the idea that at the, at the institution he was working with and for, that they were encouraging sharing of the information, sharing public sharing of their research as much as possible because they believed that was for the greater good. And I think as long as people are doing that and, and making that public, you know, setting an example then sometimes we don't think of things that are, are um, you know, important, important actions to take. But mentioning that publicly so that they could be an example, I, you know, I remembered it. I didn't remember who said it, but I remembered thinking, yes, that's the way things should be because we all, we all want to heal. We all want to, um, you know, obliterate disease and cancer and learn how to get along, or we should, <laughs> unless we have, um, you know, some some challenges, which we, Joyce, you and I had discussed about, about, um, cruelty being a, um, mental illness and, and, um, you know, white supremacy and that perhaps that there were, um, some, some roots and, and some kind of pathology there, but, um, that's another topic, but yes, sharing, public sharing of information. I was just going to say hello to Jonathan, and I was wondering if he was in the room when we were talking about microbes and uh, being found on the ice, maybe possibly someday on other planets, and 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 about invasive species on other, you know, whether we might introduce microbes to other planets. I don't know if he was here when we were talking about that. I no, welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Katrina. How are you and Victoria and Joyce? Um, I was, and I uh, uh, decided to stick around after doing that. I haven't spent a lot of time here on Clubhouse. And uh, as a person who started out their academic career in biology, that said my PhD work was done in uh, cetacean, whale and dolphin biology, I uh, it did end up getting into technology early in my academic career. And these days spend time at NASA and work closely with the Office of Planetary Defense, which is different from the Office of Planetary Protection, which was a link that I shared in the chat, was a new standard that was just um, published last August, I want to say, uh, on planetary protection. And that's the office at NASA that is specifically focused on, uh, can we minimize things coming back to Earth on missions. That contrasts with planetary defense, and uh, that is focused on things like asteroid impacts and nasty sun things such as coronal mass ejections. So uh, 
that's why I shared that particular link because it's interesting to see what the standards are around that. And uh, because you were talking about life, another domain uh, that we work on in our NASA lab is the field of astrobiology. And uh, that, of course, is the study of the origin of life, not the origin of life on Earth necessarily, just the origin of life. And uh, of course, the only place we know life is is here on our world. We have no evidence that it, it exists anywhere else. Um, as Carl Sagan used to say, if it doesn't exist somewhere else in the two trillion galaxies out there, what a terrible waste of space. Um, but we just don't have that evidence yet. And as you were talking about uh, finding things that are alive, uh, it's interesting when talking about life because we have to define what is life. And that's a Believe it or not, that's a bit of a tricky thing sometimes. And uh, the general agreement boils down to three things. It has to be a collection of molecules that are metabolizing, reproducing, and passing on information uh, somewhat accurately. Uh, and what we do find uh, here on our world is it the things that pass that test they do exist in the ice caps of Greenland. They do exist where it's extremely cold and in all the extremely cold places, the coldest places on earth, we find things that pass that test. We have mountaintops in South America that get radiation similar to Mars. And we find that there are things that pass that test there. Uh, things at the bottom of our oceans uh, where the temperatures and the pressure is outrageous and we find things that pass that test there. So um, there is a, a whole lot of effort, of course, going into can we find it somewhere in our solar system? And we'll soon have missions that go to some of the moons of the outer planets to see if there is something that passes that test there or evidence that at some point there was something that passed that test there. And even with all the exoplanets that we are now discovering, we have the ability to uh, more or less observe the atmospheres of some of these planets and look for not necessarily life, but is there, is there um, evidence of atmospheres that are similar to the atmosphere here that we know is the way it is because of life. So uh, uh, lots of interesting things going on about life here uh, in our own solar system and perhaps elsewhere uh, and an Office of Planetary Protection doing its best to make sure that if we ever do end up doing sample return missions, and that's what we call when we land somewhere, uh, pick a thing up and bring it back to Earth, that we uh, are very careful about how we do that. And I've been rambling, so I'll stop. And so, yes, I enjoyed your conversation about that earlier. Yeah, thank you so much, Jonathan, for sharing. And uh, you're not rambling at all. It's, uh, it's um, really nice to hear your uh, thoughts and expertise. So, yeah, thank you for coming and uh, being here and participating, for sure. And it was great hear your thoughts on the Roman concrete, because that's almost hilarious. That It's just recently that we figured out this one thing. And even more hilarious, it's not hilarious, it's actually a really good example of good science. Because what we found was there were 
these white bits in Roman concrete that we saw all over the world. Well, first of all, we thought it was volcanic ash that was the magic uh, thing. People thought they'd figured it out. But there were these white bits in Roman concrete, and everyone assumed that it was lime, bits of lime, and it was just sloppy manufacturing process that the Romans were doing. And by using the uh, tools, the technologies that we have now that let us look at things, let us observe in more detail at higher resolution, and I don't just mean resolution, uh, as in uh, camera resolution necessarily, but we have many tools that let us get down and look at things at the nanoscale. Uh, and even in some cases, the molecular scale. And so we saw that, wait a minute, this isn't just sloppy lime stuff. This is intentionally done uh, lime with calcium carbonate that they've put in here. And so the answer was right in front of us all the time. We just didn't necessarily have the uh, ability to really get in and look at and understand and thus move to the discovery of this wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah, thank you for sharing more details. I didn't have them in mind anymore. But um, yeah, I, I remember that first we thought it was not good quality and then we realized, oh, it's on purpose and it's really good and smart. So and yeah, we shouldn't underestimate ourselves in the past, <laughs> basically. Oh, so Exactly. Yeah. I think it speaks to an open mindset. Let's not judge, right? Let's uh, let's pay attention and uh, and not judge. Well, also that which you oh sorry, Katarina, I saw you on mic. Go ahead. Oh no, no, please go ahead. Yeah, just Jonathan, when when you said researching not but not only the origins of life on Earth, but you clarified the origin of life itself as we know it, whatever that definition. Um, is and and I'm sure that definition can be shifting. I mean, you you know, you share th these these three criteria, but even that could at some point could at some point broaden. But just but just saying that that small thing is really mind expanding and important to keep in mind. That it's not you know to to leave that okay. This is where we are. This is what we know. But but to really broaden our scope of of um, you know what we're considering, just that the origin of life, end of story, you know, anywhere. That's something yeah. to think about. Yeah, maybe we need new. We'll need new words, perhaps, to define some things. For example, most biologists um, do not put viruses in the category of living things because they don't pass that test. They don't um, metabolize on their own. They do. Um, reproduce and pass on information, but they require other collections of molecules that are metabolizing to fit that component of it. And and while viruses aren't alive, they are absolutely a part of and woven into the fabric of life as uh, these collections of molecules that interact with these collections of molecules that are what we call life. It's a fascinating study, astrobiology, it's amazing to think you can walk outside, scoop up a handful of stuff, and it's more or less the same molecules that make you and me and all the other meat sacks in the room here up. And and yet the our meat sacks are doing those three things, and those collection of molecules that we've just scooped up out there are not. 
And astrobiology is the study of, the science of, trying to figure out, well, what happened that caused that process to happen, that these molecules all of a sudden started to do these things that we're defining as life. And lots of interesting um, discoveries on that journey to uh, to figure that out, but still a lot to a lot to go. Yeah, and if you want to annoy people who say you're killing viruses, you can correct them and say you're not killing them because they're not alive. <laughs> <laughs> you're inactive, inactivating right. them. The the virologists joke about this. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> See, I would say that it really depends where this virus is being asked this question, because it can be operating within a cell in a matter that in a manner that makes it kind of hard to distinguish from the native components of the cell sometimes. So that was something that I came to really appreciate uh, with the analogy from uh, Lee Cronin when he said, look, an astronaut is a little bit alive and maybe they're. Uh, you know, uh, alive in a certain way in orbit in their spacesuit if they're doing a kind of a uh, an EVA of some sort. Um, but if they're uh, on Earth, they have a little bit more capacity to express what you would you and I would call life. So, I thought there was a little bit of nuance uh, present there that uh, also helped me appreciate that. Absolutely, and and that's again that word life, right? So from this this perspective of if if we're going to you know test a thing to the nth degree to figure something out, we have to get to these sort of root um, definitions, uh, and uh, and it's helpful to do that. But good science is always open to: Do we redefine some of these things? Did we learn something new? I, and I, the way I often think, and knowing lots of astronauts as friends, uh, and and being a rebreather diver uh, in the ocean. Um, I often think of us when we are not here on this world in a certain layer of this world, we are like a goldfish in a bowl. And if you're an astronaut, you're basically a goldfish in a bowl. You got to have the bowl of water. You got to take your environment with you because after 3.5 billion years of evolving, we have evolved to be here. The collections of molecules that do those three things, they do it here and they don't do it in space. Um, yes, that we do find things um, that survive for a while on the space station, but uh, but there is nothing that we've ever found that uh, can survive the rigors of not planet Earth. That said, I'll, I'll stress again, there are extreme ranges of things here on planet Earth. Incredibly cold, incredible pressure, uh, incredible radiation, and we do find life in those places. So uh, life, as the famous line from Jurassic Park, life uh, finds a way. And I want to welcome Dr. Heidi. It's great to see you back again. Did you have anything you wanted to share with respect to the articles or in general? Well, thank you so much, Victoria, for having me on the stage, and Katerina. I'm enjoying the news, honestly. I'll go through the ones I missed. Uh, thank you for sharing the links in the chat, and I admire this space. Uh, to be honest, the last time, last room, I've been translating it into uh, two languages, to Arabic and French, and have rooms in Arabic and French and give the credit to this room. So thank you to the Science Society for inspiring us all.
this is Heidi and I'm complete. Thank you. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, Arabic is uh, often not a language that translates a lot of texts. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty kick-ass. Um, I remember uh, hearing that uh, Spanish translated more texts into Spanish from other languages than Arabic published altogether. So uh, it's, uh, it's especially, I think, important for, um, for it to be de uh, disseminated into multiple languages. Uh, if I may ask, uh, what part of the uh, Arabic world are you uh, presenting this for or to? A whole Middle East, like uh, the plain Arabic for um, the Gulf area and the Mediterranean and uh, people from uh, North Africa, like in Egypt, Algeria, Morocco. So I use the plain Arabic, actually, which everyone can understand from this part of the world. Dr. Hayes, awesome. thank you so thank much. You. Yeah, thank you. Really Sorry. appreciating yeah, it, and uh, yeah, and I mm -hmm. add my voice to um, I O that it's really challenging, especially with the terminology and the Latin words and the scientific terminology. It's really complicated. So some of the words it's really hard to translate, and you give it as it is, especially the Latin ones. Thank you so much, Victoria and Katerina, again for holding the space and the great uh, reach of knowledge we have here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for being here and um, and and for contributing and to you know spreading the science out there um, in in different parts of the world. It's really important. And um, to origins of life, I just wanted to reference back um, a speaker we had last year, Sergei Krasno. Kutsky uh, from the Max Planck Institute in Jena, Germany. I don't know if you uh, who was here, um, where he basically um, showed in the lab that peptides could form on stardust and may have provided that way a shortcut to life, and that it's actually a very easy and very common, like possibly very common reaction. And um, it's uh, really interesting. And it was a nature paper and he came to present it. And I'll try to find the, the link to put it um, in the chat. I'll, it will take me maybe a couple of minutes and then I'll share it if people want to go also through our recordings on our website. It should be there if you put in the search for stardust and protein. Uh, you can you can listen to the replay. It was a really interesting talk. Serena was out of it. <laughs> Do you remember, Victoria? I don't know if you were there, but Serena was yeah. fascinated. <laughs> Actually, that leads me to a request. If you don't mind, Katerina, um, publishing in nature, it's one of the hurdles to everyone. But I am surrounded by a family, all of them published there except myself. And this is my next hurdle. And I would really appreciate if we can dissect our experiences from the people around us. Like I can actually share with you what my dad told me about publishing there, my um, mentors and uh, share their publications with you and my cousins as well. So I'm surrounded by five people published there and I'm wishing that my luck coming soon. Um, can we have like such a room how actually nature um, 
publish articles and the selection criteria and uh, I can share with you from the medical field and genetics and uh, entomology as well and everyone share his experience if uh, he published there that would be great what do you reckon and so yeah, yeah that would be awesome. Australian it's Australian uh, what do you think <laughs> yes we should definitely discuss this we can um, yes we can have a, a room and discuss yeah, discuss what would happen next. Thank you, Dr. Heidi. We'd love that. Katarina, I think that sounds really good. Oh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, it's really interesting. We had the plan to do this and we did one room. A person um, uh, suggested it and back then I didn't have at all the time to do it, but then it, and I think it turned out pretty well at the room in the end. Like I put the PowerPoint together and and discussed it, but it was more in general we started with a more general room grant writing like scientific writing in general but i think that would be a great idea um and then you know we can do nature but then we can also cover other things you know how to get funding uh, and different topics so yeah reach out to us and then we can organize whenever you know the time is best for everyone and we could do that yeah thanks yeah, Dr. Heidi, I'll, I'll share um, some contact information with you and we can discuss it further. Thank you really for bringing this, this idea to us. That's community. Great. So Katarina, did you want to share your next article? Yeah, I had like three or so articles that I thought were kind of yeah. interesting, if um, that's okay. And then, yeah, I, there are so many articles every week that would be really interesting to discuss we cannot possibly cover uh, so maybe we'll have to up regulate the frequency of having this too if people are interested so so but let's go into the mushroom one which i thought was really interesting um that was in science uh, like a news article if you need to keep your picnic cool try mushrooms instead of dry ice um, usually uh, people say cool as a cucumber, but the better phrase would be cool as a mushroom. And a team has found that mushrooms and other fungi, including yeast and mold, stay cooler than their surroundings. And um, that um, also explained how they stay so chill. Um, they contain a lot of water and um, gradually release it in a fungal form of sweating that lowers their temperature, says the microbiologist. Um, and this was published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I also tweeted this out. And um, it's a really neat finding, says Christopher. Still an ecophysiologist at Oregon State University was not involved with this study. Um, and um, so it's, yeah, it's a really interesting study that shows that they sweat they use kind of very similar sweating mechanisms to stay cool and um, following up in the lab the researchers found that some species such as the brown american star-footed manita were just one celsius or two celsius cooler than their surroundings but the oyster mushroom pleurotus ostriatus was almost six celsius cooler Moreover, 19 kinds of molds and yeast, including brewer's yeast, the mold that makes 
penicillin and a few human pathogens were also really cool, uh, particularly near the center of their colonies. Even at air temperatures close to freezing, the colonies were about one Celsius colder. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, so if you dehydrate them, the mushrooms, um, their, their cooling ability, of course, changes and, um, and the chilling effect and uh, how the fungi benefit from staying so cool is still unclear. It might aid in the development of release of spores from the mushroom caps. Um, but they, you know, we still have to do more research. So that's how little we know about um, things we also eat all the time. So I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I'll have to remember that. Cool as a mushroom <laughs> instead of cool as a cucumber. Katrina, okay. I am happy, happy to move back to the audience. It's been so long since I've used Clubhouse, I don't know how to do that on this new interface. But if you want to move me down there, I'm happy to not take up space on your stage. <laughs> oh, you can take up all the oh. space. It's <laughs> good. It's fun. <laughs> If you have something to say, you can just jump in. The more the merrier. Oh, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, no, worry. thank you. We're happy to have you here. And if you want, we can tuck you in. So it's it's good. Okay. Yeah, this one I thought was really interesting. And as a, we had a speaker here um, um, a few months ago that... Um, saw how tumor growths, um, when they kind of connect with neurons, how they drive up, like it's kind of a, vis uh, a vicious circle or a bad circle um, to drive up pain receptors. And then also the more pain receptors there were, it would um, make basically the tumor grow more and um, it would, it was also an indicator for, um, you know, treatment outcomes and so on, uh, pain receptors. Um, so I thought um, this was uh, also really interesting. And the title is, of course, um, pretty attractive. So uh, let's dive into this. Um, I realized that probably not everyone uh, can have access to it. Uh, if you want the full version, just um, reach out to me. I get an email, you know, the PDF. How thought itself can drive tumor growth. Um, tumor cells can form connections with neurons in the brain. Examination of a variety of types of evidence concerning human brain cancer sheds light on how these tumor neuron interactions affect cognition and survival times. A uh, few effective treatments are available for a common and universally fatal type of adult brain tumor called malignant glioma. And although these tumors exist exclusively in the central nervous systems, the interactions between the tumor cells and the um, neurons in the human brain are really not well understood. And uh, this particular rel particularly relevant because most people with the disease develop progressive cognitive decline. 
that robs them of quality of life during their final months. And this um, shows that malignant um, gliomas can grow by modifying the brain circuitry, thus taking cognitive function away from their host and ultimately leading to death. And um, these insights might lead to fundamentally new approaches to glioma treatment and provide a means of limiting cognitive decline in affected individuals. Um, so, yeah, this is really interesting. And um, these networks, basically, um, they are very dynamic and malleable um, and feature often uh, referred um, to neuroplasticity forms the basis for development and learning and also serves other functions including recovery from brain injury so neuroplasticity and um, the most basic unit of this um, neuroplasticity is the point of contact between these two neurons called synapse uh, which uh, allows information to propagate and um, before the presentation of this work by Krishna and colleagues, it was widely thought that gliomas comprise neurological and cognitive function in one of a few ways, by infiltrating and affecting brain tissue, by compressing adjacent tissue, and by inducing swelling around the tumor, or potentially by competing for blood supply through vascular steel. Now the authors uh, reveal um, that are previously unknown mechanisms in which gliomas modify brain circuitry to meet their own needs by hijacking neuroplasticity through synaptic remodeling and thereby actively altering the architecture of the brain. Uh, the ability to capitalize on this induced neuroplasticity enables glioblastomas to uh, receive extra neural signaling and to proliferate. Um, so uh, they reroute, so first they invade um, and then they reroute the blood vessels and then they also connect directly to the neurons apparently and um, this neural activity actually um, boosts tumor growth. So um, the neurons, they, they kind of hijack the neurons to help them grow more. And um, this compelling body of work has demonstrated that neurological activity can enable gliomas to grow. And it was previously reporting, reported that working synapses uh, form between neurons and gliomas, depolarized currents, which are the fundamental for foundations of neural activation and information flow in the brain, promote robust glioma proliferation. Uh, so neural activity in the visual pathway seems to promote tumor growth in the setting of the disease neurofibromatosis. Uh, Krishna and colleagues' works indicate that conscious thought and activity of the mind itself through speech mechanisms also seem to promote this tumor gen genesis, demonstrating an unexpected connection between the brain and the mind the mechanisms by which these tumors engage with neural secrets to promote synaptic plasticity. So, um, yeah, this really interesting and important work. Um, 
and they go into more details which proteins are involved uh, in this communication and it's TSP1 um, and also astrocytes kind of are important in that network. So um, yeah, I think this is really important to learn and um, about it. Uh, so we have new ways of suppressing this uh, tumor growth uh, mechanisms. Yeah, one wouldn't want to have to to tell people to stop thinking or something. Uh, yeah, that could be a problem. Yeah, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't want that, but you could probably, if you can, um, if you can dissect out with which uh, communication they kind of use. I would assume since cancer cells do everything excessively um, and very rapidly, uh, if you have a spike in those proteins in the in a specific region, then you can uh, you can image that. You could try to maybe inject a suppression of those uh, of that communication and 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 um, you know a decreased tumor growth. So. I wouldn't want people to stop thinking, but um, if we can specify the proteins involved, we can maybe cut that connection locally, hopefully. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Uh, yeah, it was just a joke, but it would be, I bet some people will be, you know, thinking that. <laughs> Still the mind, you know, to prevent your cancer. Oh, no wonder you have cancer. You were thinking too much all your life. <laughs> no, yeah. It's funny. You know what's funny, Katerina? I have CRBS, so I'm disabled too since 2013, uh, chronic pain syndrome, and it's for the same reason. So my doctors, my medical doctors, they even um, uh, I'm in the medical field to keep saying to me, stop thinking, overthinking, causing you pain, causing you um, lots of imbalance in the brain chemicals. So it's an interesting article, so I agree. <laughs> But um, it's your area of expertise, Katerina. You can tell us more how to do this on a molecular level. So, yeah, they um, they then continued talking about that uh, this TSP1 has a key role in that um, glioma-mediated synapse formation. And um, basically now what we would have to do is... To um, so and then they found in mice, like in the mouse model, that the TSP1 um, in the regions where the the mice had this tumor, it was enriched. Uh, so I think to um, to basically target that one, uh, maybe with antibody treatment. Um, there are different new drug precise drug developments that could be helpful. My brother, he's a neurosurgeon, he was in a conference uh, last month and he told me about a team that is developing uh, drugs um, that you kind of have to shine a light on it to, uh, to be activated. So 
because I would say to attack those protein that form synapses everywhere in the brain is probably really bad for you. But if you could um, deliver these drugs in, you know, for this very severe diseases with a very precise mechanisms like, um, you know, shining light on, on this, only this brain region and, um, and activate a drug there, that could be a way to to do that, and we would have to study now in the mice how how long we have to do that, um, how often, what frequency, what dosages, and and if it's safe to do so. But I if I would assume that targeting that protein would would be good. Great. Um, I have one more. We talked about cooling, and I thought it would also be important to address climate change um, research. Uh, and I thought this was um, really important research. Let me also share it in the chat really quick. Here. And um, you know, we are still figuring out how climate change affects different regions. Um, and um, here, um, this nature publication showed that increased heat risk in wet climate induced by uh, your urban humid heat makes the risk um, worse. So um, cities are generally warmer than their ancient um, rural land. A phenomenon known as the urban heat island, and often it um, the um, this urban heat island effect is another phenomenon called the urban dry island, whereby the humidity of an urban land is lower than that of the surrounding rural land, and um, this this exacerbates makes heat stress uh, worse on urban residents. However, um, the dry version basically uh, may instead provide relief for the human body. Um, uh, so the human body can cope with hot conditions better in lower humidity uh, through perspiration. And the relative balance between this heat and the the humidity so lower humidity uh, as measured by changes in the wet bulb temperature is a key yet largely unknown determinant of human heat stress in urban climates and they show here that um, it is reduced in cities and that are very dry and moderately wet climates where uh, where um, more um, but in increased wet climates, summer precipitation of more than 570 millimeters are, um, are the risk is worse. So the results arise from analyzing urban and rural weather stations, data across the world, and calculations with urban climate model. In wet climates, the urban daytime degrees Celsius um, is higher than in rural and primarily because of the weaker dynamic mixing in urban air. And this temperature increment is small, but because of the high background temperature, 
and wet climate, it is enough to cause two to six extra dangerous heat stress days per summer for urban residents under current climate condition. The risk of extreme humid heat is projected to increase in the future, and this urban effects might further amplify the risk. I thought this is was really interesting because it can help um, plan for cities the 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 urban structure we talked about um, the other day how uh, you know larger um, water um, structures like lakes that are connected are really helpful to downregulate cities temperatures and then um, but then on the other hand if you would have a lot of like um, pretty wet um, always yeah wet large areas that release a lot of humidity would be bad um, if you have a lot of heat going on so yeah it's really interesting for future urban planning to to have this data sets Yeah, I was thinking of efforts that are out there to get reflective surfaces on roofs to cool things off. And then a somewhat related effort is this organization called MEER.org, -E where they're trying to um, promote the idea of reflective uh, surfaces cooling areas. And if we could do it at scale, we could cool, cool the whole earth. But or at least counter it to some degree, but you could also have a local effect, even if you couldn't do it on a massive scale, you could help local areas that had a problem with excessive heat. So anyway, thanks for sharing that. I'm wondering about the reflective surface situation though, if that's scale, because if that, that heat is being deflected or reflected, what, and, and if you have, um, for example, an overcast day, then you're heating up what's above that, you know, what is, whatever's above, above those reflective surfaces. And so on a scale, I wonder what the effect, you know, the overall effect of that would be. Well, in a way, we already know a lot about this because there are certain surfaces that are more reflective. Um, you know, the ice caps, like we were talking about before, if they're ice, if they're white, then they reflect it. If they turn darker, then we're in trouble. So we, we kind of have some experience with that, I think. Right. What we need is for everything to just get nice and moldy so that then you have all that, that fungal, um, you know, it sounds like what your other article oh, yeah. was about. The mushroom one. <laughs> yeah, about the mushrooms you have. I mean, it's like, that sounds like if you're using, whether you know, it's sweating, like latent heat of vaporization or evaporation. But if you were in, the, in, in a wet bulb situation, I don't think it would work. That's the whole idea of the wet bulb thing where you, you can't sweat to cool. So I right. think the mushrooms, I don't yeah. think their mechanism would work. Oh, that's right. That's right. They can't cool. They can't cool. That's a terrifying thought. That's, that's really, um, that's a scary story. Yeah. Uh, what is the name of the book again? This really great book about climate, the Ministry of the Future. 
it's it starts with a very novel. scary yeah science fiction novel that yeah. which they call kind of utopian because in the sense that we we make it through i mean although there are disasters that happen along the way but in the end you know they did pick a future in which we somehow navigate the problems um through yeah. various things like the ministry of the future yeah, there was a scenario. That's how it started. The millions of people died in a heat wave in India, and people tried to cool down in a small body of water, and they were kind of cooked to death. So, and the humidity was making it worse. So people were really cooked to death. And the sad thing is that in India, there's actually a lot of mental health distress already going on. Uh, since a lot of people cannot escape the heat, since then power goes out and so on. So um, there's no place to go and people get heat strokes and heat distress, even young people. And um, it's a very scary situation where you cannot escape from. So a lot of people and kids having PTSD from these experiences on top of having to deal with this heat distress in their life so um yeah it's it's really not uh yeah it's it's really not fair and not a, a situation we should tolerate and this is the last one i was planning to share uh sorry for the prompt <laughs> moving on well it's getting kind of late so um i thought this was really uh interesting because i don't know if people uh, are realizing but uh there's a trend for people starting to sue companies their governments for not um providing a healthy um environment it's kind of uh, already a human right to be in an environment that doesn't threaten your health and well-being and for this to to um you always need data to back it up right and i think these kind of devices uh will help people to stay informed and um measure themselves air pollution anywhere they want and have data to do make pressure on their local you know districts governments wherever you want so i think this is great news and so mit developed this um this um device where you can measure air pollution everywhere and it's supposed to be really low cost and this open source tool um, was done by MIT's Sensible City Lab and allows individuals to easily and affordably monitor air quality. And um, yeah, air pollution poses a major threat to public health and the World Health Organization attributes over 4 million premature deaths globally each year by poor um, air quality. And despite this, comprehensive measurements remains limited. And MIT, this MIT research team is now introducing an open source, affordable 
and portable pollution detection device that could expand air quality monitoring capabilities. And this device is named Flatburn. This detector can be produced through 3D printing or by ordering inexpensive parts. The researchers have calibrated and tested it against cutting-edge machines and are publicly releasing all the information about it, how to build it, use it, and interpret the data. The goal is to form community groups or individual citizens anywhere to be able to measure local air pollution, identify its sources, and ideally create feedback loops with officials and stakeholders to create cleaner conditions. We've been doing several pilots around the world and we have refined a set of prototypes with hardware, software and protocols to make sure the data we collect are robust from an environmental science point of view. Uh, hopefully with the release of the open source Flatburn we can get grassroots groups as well as communities in less developed countries to follow our approach and build and share knowledge, uh, says Anne Wang, a researcher at the Sensible City Lab and other papers co-authors. And this paper was recently published in the Journal of Atmospheric Environment. And it goes on longer so uh, people can read it. Um, what I think, for example, is important. So, for example, in Germany, part of the moving to more renewable energies, um, they changed the laws which new heating types people are allowed to use when they replace their heating system. And one of them is pellets, uh, wood pellets, because you can regrow wood. And then people start that had um, the money to have their own uh, devices of, um, you know, pollution particles uh, to measure that in their neighborhood found, for example, that in actually kind of pristine villages in Germany that actually take taxes from visitors for their pristine air, uh, Kurtax, um, that they had uh, increased pollution because more and more people would put these wood pellet burners uh, as heaters in. And since they don't have um, small particle filters, uh, they were releasing all this quite toxic and uh, especially that are especially bad for people with lung disease and asthma that are sent to these these places by the government to improve their health that in these out of all places in these places now air pollution is really bad because of that so I think this grassroots type of measurement uh, that is, is really important to create this feedback loop and then to create pressure. Now, uh, people are, you know, um, these, these places are want to, of course, keep their pristine label. So they are thinking of either implementing filters, changing the heat system. So this is really important because people's health was not improving, either more getting worse and it's important to have devices like this and the cheapest they are the more people will use them so i think it is great yeah that is great 
I really hate it when one of my neighbors starts a fire in their fireplace and the smoke is spewing out. Uh, you know, we go to so much trouble to clean the air where I live in the Los Angeles area that I really res resent that. <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting way to be able to gather proof of the assault on your air. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking also of uh, dryer sheets. Many times people don't realize that the, the carrier of, of the fragrance and that soap, which you're just putting back on your clothing is, you know, it's a neurotoxin. And some of us notice it, some of us don't, or maybe don't notice what the, you know, what the effects are. But it's still it's still there, you know. It, it can send the fragrance all through a neighborhood. But this this litigation uh, possibility also makes me think of who who is responsible for for polluting the air and who's responsible for cleaning it, you know. So if this if we're measuring this levels of pollution in our air, and then it's proven. Then, then where do you go with that information? It's in the same sense that, you know, we have so much, um, for example, pollution from plastics. And wouldn't it be wonderful if the producers of those plastics were responsible for their recycling or, or collecting or disposal in some way? That's something I would love to see. So maybe something like this that puts information in the consumer's hands that can be some kind of power that will help in that direction. This also makes me think of, um, I don't know if any of you know, Philip Owen, who is on this app, and he has a club or a house called Geosphere, and he's from South Africa, and he's always talking about how they have these tree plantations there, and they consider it, you know, like it's renewable, but he says that it's, it's actually not sequestering carbon the way a natural environment would, and that, you know, that, that it's actually counterproductive, so... He, he's always talking about that and that, that, you know, that he's always saying a plantation is not a forest. So anyway, thanks. Yeah, like we were talking about last time with, the, um, you know, with the mycorrhiza in the forest floor that was connecting all of the tree roots and allowing them to communicate with each other. So if you're lacking that, then no, you definitely don't have a forest. You have a tree plantation. Sorry for interrupting again, Bob, because I'm at the moment between uh, South Korea, the city of Incheon, which is a green city, a high-tech green city in, um, next to Seoul. Um, I actually um, find uh, those air quality um, like sort of um, machines everywhere in the streets, and it's in direct actually messaging us every day with what's happening in terms of the air quality so i see this as, as a great um, like um, something can be adopted in different cities to measure the air quality send the people of the local area how clean is the air and uh, if there is a warning they will get actually um, uh, heads up what's happening in terms of um, locals not scientific with scientific background at all so um, check the city of Incheon in Seoul and I've been actually witnessing this myself um, staying there for a few um, months for work with UNESCO so um, it's really fascinating me
seeing the air quality every day and the measurements of it in the streets. Thank you. Does that make you feel worse? If you if you to feel to be honest, Victoria is scary sometimes. Yeah, because yeah, you can't pretend it's not it's not there. That's amazing. That's really I would love to see what that looked like. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And you know, we've been we mentioned Africa a few times and usually it's not in a good light but you know the bundeskanzler of germany went to visit kenya and for a very impressive reason um uh he was there last week uh for a very impressive reason because kenya managed to generate over 80% of electricity from renewable energy sources so uh, and they want to meet the goal of 100 percent by 2030 and one big part of it plays that they use a lot of heat from the ground um, they have uh, volcanic areas and um, they use this um, you know hot um, access to heat in the ground to generate power and they added a lot of solar uh, power to it and funnily they hired a lot of really great uh, german engineers to build those power stations and they're very very modern and efficient and um yeah the german um politicians went there to learn from those very modern facilities because there could be possibilities also in some places in Germany to use um, you know heat from the ground and they are learning now from Kenya and I thought we don't hear enough of this around the world of uh, very valuable um, contributions African countries are making we so I thought that was really great news. Amen. Okay, on that very positive note, I think we can close for today. Joyce, did you want to say something? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's good that um, you mentioned that because, um, you know, that other story was kind of discouraging. But I will also say that, um, you know, most of us or a lot of us feel that we we just should be energized by the the stories, you know, of negative potential events. We need to be energized to have an impact and that we can do it. We we have what we need to be able to to do the energy transition. And, you know, we can probably, um, you know, reverse this if we really put our minds to it. And so I put a couple links in the chat about um, one one organization I belong to is Citizens Climate Lobby and then that one about the reflection using mirrors and they, they actually have a whole plan. There's a, um, a scientist, um, a Harvard scientist and engineer who headed this group mirror.org and they have a whole plan, not just the mirrors. So um, it's it's another interesting organization. Anyway, thanks.
Thank you, Joyce. That's wonderful. That's community. And absolutely, we have the means. We know how to do it. Well, that's, um, yeah, I think we also need, we need to point out the problems and we need to also uh, have hopeful stories. So that's, I think the combination of both is really encouraging. Uh, so yeah, we can for sure do it. Uh, if, um, yeah, if we, we put our minds to it and if we are not compromised by different lobbies that uh, don't want us to make progress, but just want to get their very selfish interest hurt. So um, I think this is great news and a really great example that Kenya is um, showing to all of us. And yeah, let's hope uh, more people will visit Kenya more politicians and um, implement that in their home countries. So wonderful. Uh, yeah, we will have a room again on Friday with a guest speaker um, about how uh, drought changes the microbiome in the soil and um, how this could lower carbon capture in the soil. Um, and hopefully also we can discuss what we can do about it in the future. But learning about it is really important. So, and then, uh, yeah, we will plan more science newsrooms, more, uh, we check out our calendar. We have more guest speakers coming for now. Um, we have planned rooms until, I think, mid and June um, and we'll have more science rooms and Dr. Heidi will plan a science writing rooms, maybe a series. I don't think we can cover everything in one room. <laughs> so, and uh, yeah, it was so nice speaking with you all and I hope to hear you all back again soon. Yeah, great. Yeah, and we can see how many of us can get papers in nature based on what we learn. <laughs> I love this, Joyce. Can't wait. <laughs> okay, um, let's close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. <laughs>